0: Welcome to another episode of the Talk About AI podcast, a podcast about AI where we go beyond the buzzwords. The guest of this episode is Sonja Petrovich lunberg She started to work with AI within the field of natural language processing already back in 2002. And when this episode was recorded, she was the CTO of the health tech company Doctrine, which has the goal to revolutionize the healthcare industry. And before being the CTO at Doctrine, she was the head of AI and data analytics at Doctrine. But as of August this year, she is now the chief product officer at the company, 29K. In this episode, we discuss which parts of the patient journey that can be improved the most with the help of AI. Sonia gives her view on whether medical doctors need to worry about being replaced by algorithms. And we also talk about user reported data that is very common within the healthcare industry and the data quality issues that are related to such data. These and many more topics are covered in this episode. For more information about the podcast, please visit talkaboutai.com. My name is Patrick Liu Tran, and I'm the host of this podcast. Once again, warm welcome to the Talk About AI podcast. Welcome to the Talk About AI podcast, Sonja petrovic Lundby. It's very nice to have you here as a guest.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here.
0: I've actually been looking forward to this episode for quite some time since I really love the healthcare sector when it comes to AI. But before we get into that, could you please tell us a bit about your background? How did you end up working with AI in the healthcare sector?
1: Actually, healthcare is the newest uh, area where I, that I've been applying AI to and only for the last two years. I've been working with um, different forms of AI, machine learning and automation since 2002. In 2002, I was still a student uh, studying IT and organizational sciences and I started my own um, company that developed software for language learning. And while working with that, uh, because uh, this was language learning at scale, I soon had to deal with the challenges of there not being enough tutors to help all the students who wanted to learn languages. So my first uh, automation uh, AI challenge was computer-assisted language learning, automated language control, including grammar checkers, spell checkers, but also language advice for second language uh, speakers.
0: 2002. That's quite early within the field of AI, at least in the kind of modern version that we know of today.
1: Indeed. And at that time, uh, the funny thing was that most language learning resources online were made by language teachers. So they just took uh, grammar books and then they digitalized them and used exactly the same methods. But we were a group of uh, people in our 20s who've uh, all had background in computer science and mathematics. So we approached the challenge from a completely different side and then used the methods that were usual on Internet. So instead of digitalizing language learning, we added language learning to web development and usage of Internet. And uh, uh, the results were excellent.
0: That's very interesting. And how long did you work with this?
1: Until 2010, So for uh, almost for nine years and uh, the projects uh, became uh, more varied with the time. So I also uh, did some machine translation, automated information extraction. I worked with uh, uh, terminology, automated dictionaries and stuff like that.
0: So a lot of uh, text data.
1: Uh, Yes, and uh, the area of artificial intelligence that's called natural language processing and natural language understanding. So this was my entry point from pure computer science and mathematics into AI and uh, dealing with natural languages.
0: Cool. And what happened after 2010?
1: Uh, After 2010, I uh, started working at uh, another Scandinavian startup company called Artificial Solutions, and Artificial Solutions develops uh, a platform for building dialogue systems. So it, they develop generic technology that their customers can use to build chatbots, virtual assistants, personal assistants, etc. And there, for uh, six odd years, I was uh, a part of the research and development department, uh, working on new methods, combining rule-based uh, techniques, Uh, for building dialogue systems with statistical machine learning techniques. So I worked a lot with the hybrid approach to natural language understanding and natural language interaction.
0: You seem to be one of the people who have been working with natural language processing and natural language understanding for a very long time.
1: Yeah, I often hear that. The fact is that I know people who've been doing this since the 80s, but yeah, there are not a lot of us who've done this as, uh, as long as 17 years or whatever it is now.
0: And given your long experience of natural language processing and understanding, how long would you say that we have come within these areas? Have we made any progress that have surprised you in the recent years?
1: Absolutely. So I would say... As recently as 2013-14, very efficient speech recognition was still part of science fiction. So if someone would have told me that within five years we would have uh, ASR, automated speech recognition, that is better in noisy conditions than humans are, I wouldn't have believed it. But we've seen that it happened 2015 or 16, I don't remember when the threshold was reached. A machine translation is a challenge that computational linguists have been trying to solve since the World War II. And for many years, the promise has been that it will be solved within five years and then five years more and then five years more. But now we actually have Google Translate that is useful for many apl- applications. It can't be used for translating literature. It's not perfect. It works mostly between big languages or between English and another language for the less uh, big uh, language pairs. uh, It's done via English and the quality decreases, but still it enables most of people to understand, to use content, at least content online in languages that they don't speak. And that's amazing progress.
0: Yeah, I agree. It's quite fascinating to see the recent progress that we've had within this field so what did you do after Artificial Solutions?
1: <laughs> then I had a one-year stunt at Meltwater, which is a media intelligence company. Uh, what Meltwater basically does is analyzes both traditional and social media online, most of media on the Internet, and then extracts insight from all that uh, amount of text. So I was part of the Knowledge Graph team, uh, that uh, was working on merging the bits and pieces of information from different um, news media articles, and as I said, social media and posts, uh, blog posts, et cetera, job ads, even into a single source of truth that then could be used to give insights to the meltwater clients.
0: So you worked a lot with collecting data sets?
1: Absolutely, a lot of data processing. So data pipelines with enormous amounts, uh, amounts of data that needed to be cleaned, uh, standardized, parsed, and then structured into a uh, machine-friendly format.
0: Very cool. And uh, did you start here at Doctrine after your year at Meltwater?
1: Yeah, uh, after that, it seemed that all the experience I've gained in these other fields uh, led me to Doctrine. Because what I do at Doctrine is at the intersection of uh, these different areas. Uh, so, Doctrine is a, a medtech, a health tech company here in Sweden. And what Doctrine does is ha- uh, helping healthcare providers digitalize the patient journey. In other words, uh, so Doctrine improves, automates when appropriate, or makes more efficient communication between patients and their healthcare providers, uh, doctors, physiotherapists, psychologists, nurses, different kinds of professions, but also the communication around the patient within the healthcare system. So if uh, a general practitioner needs an input from a specialist, they can do that also in the, in the doctrine system. And to do this as well as possible, uh, we apply a wide range of um, methods and techniques uh, including dialogue systems or data analysis, data generation, etc.
0: That's very interesting. And could you please describe a typical customer of Doctin?
1: Actually, we already have such a wide range of customers, but uh, one kind is a clinic without patients. It could be a general practice uh, clinic or uh, house doctors uh, where patients then can get in touch uh, with their clinic, already from home online using their phone or their computer. And the interaction can start with the system collecting general uh, medical uh, history facts or anamnesis from the patient and then passing that information over to the relevant uh, personnel at the healthcare center. Uh, This means that the patient can get more adequate help uh, faster and also that the resources can be distributed better. So if the patient has an administrative errand, they can get in touch with that part of the office immediately or they can get self help advice from a nurse or they can be directed uh, to a specialist doctor who will then, when meeting the patient, already have their complete medical background, which is relevant for the issue they're seeking care for. Another kind of uh, customer would be specialist outpatient clinics or um, uh, psychologists or even insurance uh, companies. Uh, who need to uh, understand the patient's errands better.
0: So you seem to have a rather wide range of customers. We will actually get back to Doctrine soon. But before we do that, and before digging into the AI work at Doctrine, as always, I would like to ask my guest, how do you define artificial intelligence?
1: Oh, I love that question. And actually, uh, I have to answer it so often. Uh, that I've looked up different uh, Wikipedia and dictionary uh, definitions of artificial intelligence and most of them uh, say something like um, artificial intelligence is when a machine solves a problem that requires human intelligence. But this definition itself is a paradox, because if you say that a machine can solve something, then solving that problem no longer requires human intelligence, then it it can be solved by machine, which is why my favorite AI definition is the Tesla theorem from uh, 1970, which says that... Um, uh, so what Tesla said is, uh, AI is whatever hasn't been done yet. And uh, there is a beautiful uh, Wikipedia page of this, which is called AI effect. So once uh, something uh, an AI challenge is solved... It's usually not considered AI any longer by people. For example, calculator, the ordinary calculator that we have, was uh, considered uh, the calculus, was considered something that you need human intelligence for. Then it was automated, and now no one considers calculator and AI. Spam filters are not considered AI any longer. And I'm thinking for uh, coming generations, uh, speech recognition will be a given.
0: So, according to this definition, what is considered to be AI changes over time, right? Uh,
1: Yes, or it is always, uh, AI is always what is in the future.
0: Yeah, and related to the definition of AI, what do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions when it comes to AI nowadays?
1: So one of them is the fear of singularity and the generic AI and that AI will take over the world. And uh, this is not something I myself worry about because uh, AI being able to solve problems and AI having a will of its own are two completely different things. So intelligence and the will uh, they don't really overlap. So, so far, we've seen no signs of there being a machine that does anything on its own initiative. So for me, AI is just a tool uh, in a toolbox with many tools uh, that uh, will do good or do bad depending on who is using it. But there is always a human behind it that tells it uh, what to do. Uh, That's one misconception. And then the other is this thing of AI being a new or a magical thing or what is real AI and what is not real AI. If it is a rule-based system or expert system, is it AI or not? Or if it is machine learning, does it have to be deep learning? Does it have to be neural network-based? Can it be a logistic regression model and all of those uh, more or less fancy words that are thrown thrown around? And... uh, For me personally, I don't think it matters. I would like to replace the whole discussion of AI with discussion about automation because that's what it is. It is uh, making sure that a machine can solve a problem and if a machine can solve a problem, then it can scale in a completely different way than human solving a problem can scale uh, if human needs to first be educated, trained, etc., etc., and also can't solve the same problem consistently with the same quality and the same outcome the whole time. So if we, instead of discussing AI and whether it is real AI or not, speak about uh, automation and whether this automation is efficient or not, if it does what it's supposed to or not, how do we evaluate it, etc., I think we would have a much more constructive discussion.
0: So you kind of mean that AI is a tool for automation and automation is the end purpose in a sense.
1: Yes, and then the more advanced uh, AI uh, techniques become, the more powerful automation we can get and the more things we can automate than we ever could before. Definitely, that's the difference. But it's just the difference of scale, not the principle.
0: And before this episode, I went to your website to read about Doctrine. And when I clicked on the About page, it said that Doctrine was founded with the aim to improve healthcare through new technology and AI. So it seems like AI is at core of what you do. At least that's what's being communicated.
1: It definitely is. So, uh, Doctrine as a company has been data aware. It was founded to digitalize the patient journey in a smart way. And smart way often means automating uh, steps in this journey. Uh, Not always, but sometimes. And in order to automate in the best possible manner, you do want the full toolbox that the artificial intelligence research area offers. But what I like about Doctrine and how it differs from uh, most of my previous workplaces is that artificial intelligence is never a aim of its own. The aim is to improve healthcare, uh, to make uh, the patient journey better. And then depending on which parts of the patient journey one is improving, then different uh, methods are better or less uh, well-suited. And artificial intelligence or other kinds of automation are just uh, one of uh, multiple alternatives. And um, also one of the consequences of data awareness and AI awareness being at the core of doctrine from the beginning is the fact that currently doctrine probably has the biggest uh, annotated uh, Anamnesis dataset in the Nordics. Uh, because uh, Doctrine has the second largest number of digital consultations in Sweden. Uh, the second only after a digital healthcare provider Cree. And uh, these uh, interactions between patients and Doctrine's clients are uh, most often annotated with the outcome, which is excellent basis for all kinds of uh, Data analytics and machine learning from that data that we can profit from, or most importantly, that our uh, customers and their patients can profit from.
0: So, what is an anamnesis data set? Uh,
1: good question. Thank you for reminding me to explain that. Anamnesis is a medical history. So, it is a set of questions about uh, patient's background, their symptoms, uh, the severity of the si- symptoms. As, uh, maybe chronical illnesses that they have, et cetera, and the patient's answers to them.
0: So before you were the acting head of AI and data analytics, and now you're the CTO, but you're still working with AI, as I understand it. So what does that role change mean in practice when it comes to your AI work?
1: Uh, Actually, it was a rather organic switch because... um, the, the first, the original separate AI team built the data pipelines at Doctrine and also the early m- machine learning prototypes and models. But uh, now AI is an in- and data awareness, as I uh, keep repeating myself, is an integral part of everything Doctrine does. So we do use data uh, to make data-driven choices when it comes to user experience, when it comes to medical content development, when it comes to uh, how we teach train recommend our customers to use the platform to improve their internal workflows and processes etc etc so uh, data as a starting point is not only the case when we build a full uh, process automation like uh, automated diagnostics or... Um, uh, recommend their system so similar uh, but uh, any kind of choices and learning from uh, the system and how it is used
0: so does that mean that the AI work is spread across the entire organization now
1: Uh, yes Uh, I would say that even though as I said I'm a bit skeptical to the usage of AI uh, uh, because it's become such a buzzword and is considered a magical thing but uh, collection of data, data analytics and uh, learning from data is spread uh, across the whole platform and doctrine as a company.
0: So given that you expect that everyone within the organization should be data aware in their daily work, how do you go about to ensure that? Do you recruit based on some strict competency criteria or do you have an internal education for your employees? Or do you have something else in place to ensure this data awareness?
1: It is always a challenge and I don't think we have internal education of the the type this is how you become data aware. But um, I mean we do have data as a starting point at our town halls, at our follow-ups, at our uh, planning workshops, etc. If we use uh, data as a background as input to decisions and then if we also when developing new things define how we will evaluate them and what data we will collect to measure how successful they were then it becomes the way of thinking for for the whole company and this is true not just for the product and tech department, this is very much true for our medical content team who are very data driven themselves and have that background but also our HR processes are data-driven, and uh, the business development, etc.
0: That's very interesting. In many companies that work with AI, you can see centralized AI and data functions with roles such as data engineers, machine learning engineers, deployment, and so on, rather than having everyone within the organization working with these types of questions and being data aware. Given that data awareness is so spread within the organization, I can imagine that you get quite a few potential use cases that are being identified throughout the entire organization?
1: Uh, There are, and of course we still need data engineers and data scientists and machine learning engineers and as I said even our medical team so uh, we have medical doctors who've spent um, 15 years working with modeling and data analysis and uh, predictions uh, based on data sets from their field, even though they don't have a statistics or computer science degree. So uh, the same competencies are still required, but the way of thinking is not that uh, here is a team that just builds AI. It is more that uh, let's see what data do we need, what data do we have, what data do we want to collect and how, and then let's make most use of that data, whether it is building uh, advanced AI models or uh, very simple uh, kinds of analytics dashboards. Some, I think what's often underrated is the, um, the usefulness of very simple models of logistic regression or random forests or uh, like th- those kinds of um, uh, machine learning methods that work well even with smaller data sets or for very narrow problem I think if all one does is multilayer neural networks and deep learning, then one misses of the low-hanging fruit that sometimes can bring more value uh, to them than the most advanced algorithms.
0: I totally agree. If you go out and talk to people in other companies, there are actually rather few who use deep learning methods. And people are often somewhat ashamed of telling others what they are using in terms of models because they believe that everyone else is using these fancy deep learning models, but they themselves are not. But, uh, yeah, as you say, it's not always the case that you use these deep learning models.
1: And here, actually, natural language processing is often the exception because if you want to convert unstructured uh, Natural language data, which we have a lot of, we are collecting, we we have a number of of open questions in our system and then collect free text answers that we first need to anonymize before we can use them. But for analyzing free text, often you do want trained word vectors or word space uh, models uh, that are based on large uh, data sets, but then only fine-tuned or on domain-specific data sets in order to get good results. So here... Implicitly, we are using results of deep learning, but we are not relying just on them. And then we are using them as input as the first step to maybe less advanced uh, models that do the classification or categorization or convert this unstructured information to more structured.
0: And related to this, what would you say are some of the benefits of using simpler models over more advanced models? Or... Rather, more generally, how should one think when selecting which model to use in a specific case?
1: I mean, the choice of right model is always data-dependent, problem-dependent, context-dependent. So I'd say if you're building a recommendation system for ads or for music you're going to listen or movies, the requirements are very different than when you're recommending diagnosis to a healthcare professional uh, because the consequences of having a false positive or a false negative are completely different. So uh, among the requirements that we have, that we are posing to ourselves when building uh, automated systems that have uh, consequences on people's health, it is that there is clear accountability for any decisions that the system is making. So most, um, so almost always we have a human in the loop, which means that there is a, hu- a real human making the final call where the system's main task is to present as good decision background for the human to make decision upon, but also uh, explainability. The system needs to highlight why it is making the Recommendation or the decision that it is making. And then, not all of the advanced neural network models can explain what their decisions are based on. And also, the effect of adding more data sometimes can have very unintuitive consequences, like adding one more example or, uh, I don't know, 1% more. Rows into the data set can result in drastically different system behavior and this is not something we can permit in these life and death kind of applications. So So accountability and explainability are definitely constraints that limit the number of techniques we can use.
0: So that's uh, one of the most typical arguments for using simpler models, right? Uh, The interpretability. But uh, then there is the counter-arguments with the interpretability and performance or accuracy trade-off.
1: Yes, and uh, I mean, uh, there are interpretable more advanced models as well. Then uh, another argument is data sparseness or uh, data size. As I said now, our data set is among the biggest in this area, Uh, but sometimes for some of the problems, the data set is still uh, too sparse uh, for the uh, most advanced models, to be able to learn something from it.
0: So you so, basically don't have enough data for the more advanced models?
1: Uh, true. Uh, yes, uh, For especially for the long tail of the less common uh, conditions or situations. Uh, then you have the bulk for which you have many examples, and those can be automated using one technique. But then for the rest, you probably want to use others or, as I mentioned before, uh, use hybrid Uh, Systems where you combined a uh, humanly defined rules uh, made by experts uh, with uh, data driven insights or uh, weights or models trained on uh, annotated data. So picking the right model is not about picking the most advanced or the least advanced model, but really understanding what you're trying to solve, how your data looks like how your constraints, application constraints look like, sometimes legal constraints, and then knowing the advantages and disadvantages of the models at your disposal.
0: I totally agree. That's very good advice. And in your case, given that you work with healthcare, which is a quite sensitive topic compared to, for example, movie recommendations in a streaming platform, do you have any constraints in terms of only being allowed to use interpretable models?
1: Yeah, for our core functionality, which has to do with people's health, uh, we only use, uh, we only look at methods uh, that, make, that are explainable.
0: And who has requested this? Is it the customers?
1: Uh, actually here, uh, considering we are working with healthcare providers, our own understanding of this area is usually much higher than our Customers, So our customers are very aware of the medical quality and the medical risks and medical regulations, but when it comes to which models are more suited or not and which kind of features we can offer, including explainability, usually the requirements come from ourselves.
0: And who within Doctrine has set these requirements?
1: Uh, It is the leadership of Doctrine. It is uh, especially the... Uh, product tech leadership, which in our case considers of a chief product officer, chief technical officer and chief medical officers, where we ourselves set uh, set the standards that we want to follow. And Doctrine has been one of the thought leaders in this area in Sweden and even uh, the Nordics. So we've recently published together with uh, uh, some other companies, uh, health tech companies in Sweden, uh, a kind of manifesto where we are trying to inspire other actors in this area to follow a certain code of conduct of responsibly using technologies when it comes to healthcare and also inspire uh, buyers of uh, health tech to make these uh, requirements of their providers.
0: Would you say that more interpretable models make people trust the systems and algorithms more?
1: Uh, Definitely, and I think we've seen this happen, not the least in the healthcare like there have been image analysis uh, applications in uh, uh, in healthcare circumstances where the system was better than the specialists at determining whether there is a cancer in a uh, uh, in an x-ray picture or not, but the system could could not explain why it thought this was a cancer or not, and even though it was accurate in whatever percentage of cases 95, 98, and the best specialist in the area had a confidence interval of between 80 and 90, still it was not used because it was the humans using the system that had to uh, take responsibility for uh, acting upon the system's recommendation or decision. And they couldn't take this responsibility if they didn't understand why uh, the system reasoned as it did.
0: A couple of years ago, a professor told me that his AI algorithm, which outperformed the doctors at a Swedish hospital in terms of prediction accuracy, when it comes to diagnosing based on x-ray images, he told me that uh, this solution was not being accepted by the doctors at the hospital, and he was kind of wondering why that was the case. But he also told me that the model is not interpretable, but that it shouldn't matter, since it is better than the human doctors and I think that you actually just now answered his question of why they didn't welcome his algorithm with open arms simply because they probably uh, can't take responsibility for something they can't understand or explain and this kind of slows down the adoption of complex and non-interpretable models for many use cases in practice right?
1: I also think it makes sense because uh, what I've seen myself when working with different purely data-driven uh, natural language uh, understanding uh, methods is that if the method you're using is of the kind where you where the math's behind, where the weight's behind, where whatever model is trained uh, behind the recommender system is not explainable or understandable, then you have very little control of your system. And then the... Introducing a new data set or a subset can completely change the behavior of the system without you knowing why. And then it makes also, maybe you can, uh, maybe if you uh, remove the explainability requirement, you can get the first version out very quickly, more quickly than if you have it. But then to keep improving that, uh, that model, if you can't understand, if you can't explain or control how it is learning, then there is no guarantee that the additional data you're gathering won't uh, decrease the results in the context that the system was good at before.
0: That's actually a very good point. For the ongoing maintenance and improvements of models, interpretability can be very crucial. And if it's okay with you, could we talk a bit about concrete AI use cases that you have here at Doctrine? I know that based on your definition of AI things that you have sold and automated is no longer considered to be AI. But could you give some examples of things that were considered to be AI historically, but that is now automated?
1: Uh, Sure, Uh, I'd be happy to. Uh, So as I say, what Doctrine does is uh, digitalizes the patient journey and also the communication with patients and about patients within a healthcare system. And the very uh, the, the reason why a patient uh, comes in touch with a healthcare provider is usually before because the patient has uh, a problem an issue that they want help with and already here is the first thing that we've uh, automated uh, by our uh, as i said anamnesis collection system medical history uh, system so we have a individualized context-based medical history collection where depending on the patient's uh, age and gender and what their primary reason for seeking care is, the system asks uh, a series of questions and depending on each answer that the patient gives, the follow-up questions can be different. And the goal of this whole system and what uh, it is trying to achieve is to ensure Uh, the optimal balance between coverage and the number of questions that the patient needs to answer. So the goal is the system shouldn't ask any unnecessary question, but it should uh, ask all the questions needed to eliminate uh, any critical conditions, etc. So this is the first part. Uh, Having a system that has a wide enough knowledge base of medical questions and then it being able to adapt the questions to each and every situation and patient. The second part then is presenting this information to um, healthcare professionals, to a doctor or a nurse or a physiotherapist or a psychologist in an optimal manner. And this is research-based and evidence-based. Uh, there is a lot of research how to present medical information so that the uh, medical professionals uh, make optimal decisions. So how is negative information presented, how is positive information presented, in which order, etc. So this is a second part of this system. We call it medical report generation. Uh, then after that, uh, we also have uh, what we call switchboarding of patients to the right uh, healthcare professional. It can be based on the reason the patients are seeking care or the time when the patients are seeking care or how a, a concrete uh, healthcare unit is organized. What kind of professionals do they have there? When they, what are their working hours, etc.? Maybe we can start there?
0: Yeah, definitely. When it comes to the first part that you mentioned, where you ask a number of questions to the people who seek care, then you balance between asking enough questions to rule out all of the critical conditions on the one hand and to not ask too many questions on the other hand. How is that done? Could you mention what data you're using and what types of methods that you're using?
1: Yes, it's a highly iterative process uh, that maybe starts by an, uh, as an expert system. So we have in-house medical professionals with um, uh, several different specialists who do the classical kind of medical research for the different conditions. So we have full coverage. We do have uh, medical content that covers all uh, search causes that patients in the countries uh, where we have patients uh, can have for uh, seeking healthcare. And then uh, We've started by, uh, as I said, by our medical team doing medical research and then starting with the question list that was organized as a form of decision trees. But from then on, we've been gathering data and we've been uh, improving and fine-tuning the questionnaires in a much more data-driven manner. So here I won't go into details because part of it is our IP. Yeah. But uh, one of the things we've... Um, had strong uh, hypothesis on, and then we've gotten a grant from Innova, which is an innovation fund, a state innovation fund here in Sweden. And then this hypothesis was confirmed in cooperation with KTH, Royal Institute of Technology, and their machine learning department. It is that um, in very many situations, a medical decision uh, based on medical history won't be correct unless the structured history. So the structured medical history is when a system asks, uh, asks a question and then offers predefined uh, answer alternatives, either multi or single choice. It in most cases should be also uh, completed with a small set of open questions where the patient can use their own words uh, to describe what they find is more most relevant for their concrete uh, situation and their con- uh, the concrete health issue that they are dealing with. And this is uh, what uh, one of the biggest challenges later for the automated follow-up of this anamnesis, of this medical history is that this, whatever system I- will be making recommendations or automated decisions based on the automatically uh, gathered medical history, it will need to understand the free text part of the answers as well in order to make uh, even approximately as good a decision as the human who would be reading the same reports. Uh, so if I want to summarize it, what we are doing is we have, we have a number of structured questions with predefined answer alternatives uh, that are based on uh, the search cause and the other context uh, uh, pieces of information that we collect while asking the questions, but we are also have open-ended questions where patients can uh, explain in their own words what they find is most relevant with their condition and the uh, the reason they are seeking care.
0: So basically, initially you said you started off with your medical experts defining with their deep domain knowledge kind of the decision trees with hard-coded rules. And then as you go, you get more and more data and then you can kind of use that data to train the system. Exactly. And uh, normally when you talk about data, uh, you get into the discussion of data quality. And uh, in this case, a lot of the data you collect is user-reported data, right? Right. And um, in a sense, it becomes a bit subjective.
1: Uh, It does. The... the the thing here however is that it is the same subjective data that is used as a basis for um, decision making independently of whether the system is making the decision or a human so the system is not at disadvantage De- ne- Definitely yeah.
0: but still there is this I mean data quality issue overall right both for humans and machines Yes How do you take this into account is it possible to take this into account in any good way yes you you do
1: have to use um, different methods to compensate for data not always being fully objective or for example one of the mo- uh, one of the medical history questions with the strongest predictive value for the final outcome of the interaction between a patient and, and the healthcare system is the patient's self assessment about how much pain do they have, or their general health. So the uh, the general health self-assessment has proven to be a very strong predictor in general uh, of uh, of the outcome of the interaction. And this is by definition a subjective measure. But many of these aspects can be partially compensated for by uh, the amount of data that you collect because then you can compare. What becomes uh, interesting is not the absolute level uh, or the absolute answer to a certain question, but rather how it is relatively to other other examples in the same data profile. So, for example, you could learn that people in Sweden assess their health or pain level in different levels than people in another part of the world, or that uh, older people have different assessment patterns than younger people or you know that it is gendered gender dependent etc etc but then just by having a appropriate um preference range you can still make um uh, useful insights or uh, useful uh decisions uh based on whatever you've gathered
0: so you kind of as you collect more and more data you can calibrate the exactly. answers exactly exactly cool and then the next part that you mentioned was the medical report generation part to be able to in a as good way as possible present the data to the medical professionals yes and uh, how do you go about there you said you refer to a lot of research yes that uh, kind of tells you what is a good or bad way to present data on right yes so is that also starting off with a lot of deep domain knowledge and rule-based systems?
1: Actually, medical report generation is still mostly rule-based in our case, uh, or it's governed by the uh, decisions made by uh, domain experts. Uh, then depending, uh, as we start handling languages with more um, demanding syntax, etc., we can use the off-the-shelf or uh, machine-learned NLP tools maybe to summarize or to... Uh, make, you know, change the whatever uh, inflections of the words in a report, et cetera, et cetera. But this is uh, more of the second or of or th- or third or fourth iteration of the system uh, because the reports are based on a very limited data set and we have control of the context they should cover. Then the rule-based approach actually feels like the most uh, meaningful, like the best tool for the task in this case. Then also I, I want to say what's, what's relevant here is uh, to not uh, limit ourselves to just machine-readable representation of the, of the collected medical history of the anamnesis, but we also are very strict about keeping a sound machine-readable data structure behind the connect, uh, collected data Exactly in order to be able to guarantee uh, maximum data usability both for our customers who are healthcare providers and who are using this for their internal uh, quality improvement work but also in order to be able uh, to for their sake build the machine learning uh, prediction models or um, decision support models.
0: And then you mentioned the switchboarding use case to be able to kind of connect the patient with the most appropriate person at the clinic.
1: Yes, and here I'd actually like to point out why we call it a switchboarding. An expression that's become quite popular, at least in Scandinavia lately, is auto-triaging. So different healthcare systems in the world have different kinds of first-line interaction with the patients, and here maybe Scandinavia is a less typical one, where what happens first is that patients do not speak directly with specialists or even with the general uh, practitioners, like the general specialists, uh, but they speak with a triage nurse who then determines whether they should uh, uh, stay home and just follow simple self-care advice or go directly to an ER or maybe meet the doctor the same day or meet the doctor later for or a physiotherapist or uh, something else. And there is a lot of demand for automating this triage process because the research shows that even human triage nurses determine the wrong healthcare level in 30% of cases. And then the instinct is that machines should be able to do this better. But when we've done our own studies on the existing uh, auto-triage or at least uh, auto triage solutions are out there on the market, and also when we've evaluated what kind of effect of effect this has on the healthcare system as a whole, what we've found out is that actually automated systems have to default to a higher level of healthcare whenever it doubt. So if a patient seems to be somewhere in between staying at home and meeting a general practitioner. The system will default to meeting a general practitioner. Uh, or if a patient is somewhere in between general practitioner and ER, the system will send the patient to the ER. And the total global result of doing this automatically was in the best case, with the best system we've evaluated, that 20% more patients ended up in ERs, uh, which then puts in danger the lives of people who actually need. Uh, emergency help uh, and this uh, then doesn't feel like useful or, or responsible use of AI so we, what we we'll want to have is in cases like this where there is not enough research or there is not enough evaluation or the evaluation shows that the system doesn't have in total the positive effect to still have the human in the loop and then the switchboarding solution kind of just uh, still still has a human that makes the final solution but it Uh, tries to have the first human to look at the patient to be as optimal as possible.
0: This is very interesting. So in this case, you choose to not automate the switchboarding process entirely because it can result in a higher cost in the end. If the model is uncertain and therefore sends more people to the ER who doesn't really need to be there because the system kind of wants to be safe rather than sorry, right? Right.
1: So in isolation, if, we, if you just look at this patient and this uh, context, then it is less harmful to the patient to be sent unnecessarily to ER than not to be sent to ER when they need to be. And this is the danger of evaluating AI systems in isolation. But if you evaluate them in the whole context of the uh, whatever ecosystem you are trying to improve, then often you notice that uh, uh, there can be Uh, the kind of implicit consequences that are sometimes unexpected. Like in this case, for this concrete patient, it's better if the choices of them uh, is between them going to the doctor when they need to go to the ER or one in 10 patients not going to the ER when they should and nine patients going to ER unnecessarily, then it's still safer to send them all to the ER. But if you look at the ER as a system and what it does, what consequences it has to have 10 times as many patients, then you realize putting this into practice maybe costs more than than it helps.
0: That's a really interesting point.
1: Uh, and I mean, this doesn't need to be this kind of life and death uh, uh, situation. It can also be if you're building whatever kind of... If you're trying to automate your client relationship uh, management or building a chatbot, et cetera, it can seem like a good idea. Well, we won't have to pay people to do this. We will have a system that does it. But then if you look at the from the global pr- perspective, you could realize that uh, the team required to ma- maintain this system is both um, bigger and more expensive than the team of humans that would be needed to keep doing the task manually.
0: And then you also factor in the fact that often the chatbots are not as good as humans. So you get less satisfied customers as well. Yeah,
1: if it is a chatbot system. Yeah. Uh, But uh, yeah. So what I most often propose is then identifying these areas where you have enough data and you have the problem occurs enough times that it makes sense just to solve this limited problem in an automated way and then let the humans handle the outliers instead.
0: So then we get a glimpse into how you prioritize between different AI use cases. Definitely. So you kind of try to find the low-hanging fruits?
1: Yes, so doctrines started by a thorough research of the whole uh, patient-healthcare system interaction in order to identify these potholes, these places where most of efficiency was lost, where a healthcare professional spent most time without adding much value. And then what one, one uh, found out, what the user research showed and the... Uh, patient uh, healthcare professional flow uh, analysis showed is that out of a, let's say, 20-minute visit uh, of a patient with a healthcare professional, half the time went for uh, collecting medical history, quarter of the time went for documenting what was uh, uh, exchange during the consultation and only a quarter of the time was left for examination, for the co- other kind of communication between patient and doctor, comforting the patient giving them advice and making the diagnosis so even if we started by automating the diagnosis, the potential for making healthcare better is still very, very limited, where the biggest potential was was automating and making the medical history step better and the documentation step better and that's why we started there.
0: That's a really cool story. I mean, normally when you think about AI in the healthcare sector, you kind of think about the medical diagnosis and the detection of cancer from images, etc. Do you have that here as well?
1: Yes, we actually have built a prototype for uh, skin cancer detection based on the available Uh, skin cancer image uh, databases and we've seen that we can do it but also we've seen that if we look at the healthcare system as a whole which is our target system then that's not where we can make most use and also as I said you can automate the decision but but when most of the time goes into collecting data for the decision and not the decision making itself then it makes more sense to start uh, automating the data collection and even more so if you can make data collection better, but if by automating the data collection you even increase the data collection quality, then implicitly you also make the decision faster and you make the decision better because the decision the human decision maker has better data set to base the decision on. And I think the decision process itself, it's For us humans, it's such a fast process that we should only automate it if we can guarantee that the machine will make consistently better decisions than humans and that by automating it, we won't scale discriminative behavior or bias or uh, any other kind of harmful behavior, which if it is done by a single human only impacts a limited number of patients, but if it becomes systematic and uh, automated impacts uh, thousands or even millions.
0: Yeah. And that's the danger of scalable systems, right? If they are wrong or discriminatory, they will potentially have a huge impact. And since you're working with AI in the medical sector, I would like to ask you a question that you probably get asked a lot. Should medical doctors be afraid of being replaced by AI?
1: I don't think so. Why? Why? Uh, here, actually, even though I'm not a doctor, I uh, like to quote Hippocrates, uh, the father of medicine. And one of his sayings was uh, that a doctor's role is to cure sometimes, treat often, and comfort always. And so far, I haven't seen an AI system that can comfort a patient.
0: That's a really good answer to that eternal question. <laughs> so how long time can it take from the start of our automation project until it is finally deployed?
1: Uh, again, it can vary on the scope, on the data availability, on how similar it is to the projects that the same team has uh, carried out before. But uh, some can be as short as one day, can be looking at the data, finding out that this component uh, should be optimized this way, or maybe if you've designed the pre-study phase uh, very carefully with uh, A-B tests and you get the results out, then the follow-up can be one-day investment. But what's uh, what's usually the most uh, time-consuming is the data collection. So if you don't have any infrastructure in place, like when Doctrine was newly started, you had to both build the product and build the data collection within that product, the data flow, the data pipelines, the data anonymization so that you can store the data uh, beyond the uh, like uh, the limited uh, time storage that you can uh, justify for personal data otherwise and then start on the analytics part and prototyping and evaluation. So in that case, it can take years uh, from the, concept stage until you have something um, rolling in production for real users.
0: What goes into data collection?
1: One uh, very common uh, requirement a data team gets from a customer that is not that data aware is collect all the data. Give me all the data and then when we have the data, uh, we will find out what we want to do with it. Yeah. And the thing is, it doesn't work that way. It very rarely works. If you don't have a data, concrete data collection use case in mind, you will miss some aspect of data or another, which will may anyhow force you to go back to uh, fine-tune your data collection system, and only then will you be able to build the uh, working models. So you need to always start by what uh, problem you're trying to solve, then finding out what data you need, what data you can get, the data that you can't get, how can you compensate for that? Can you enrich the data? Can you mock the data? Can you compensate for the data with rules or with expert knowledge or something else? Uh, And then depending on the uh, size of data, of the legal requirements around the data, et cetera, maybe collecting the consent of the data subjects if you are in the GDPR area, or making sure that you have a scalable enough system that can uh, cater for that kind of data flow. Then identifying what kind of, uh, am I building a supervised or unsupervised kind of uh, uh, machine learning tool? If it is supervised, you need to have the gold standard, the annotations, what what is the outcome, how should uh, the system behave? Uh, And then whether you can get the annotations, the gold standard, the outcome automatically or whether you need to have um, people sitting down and manually doing this uh, while the data is being collected. Uh, Yeah, those are the typical steps that need to be made.
0: So that's quite a lot going into the word data collection. Definitely. So with all this data that you collect, how do you validate the data?
1: Uh, it's a good question and it, it is a difficult question. So and a broad question. <laughs> and a broad question as well. But the doctrine's data situation is probably a bit different from other contexts I've been in because a doctrine doesn't only collect a sample of data. It has full data of all the patients interacting with the system. Uh, And uh, especially for some of our customers, it is all patients that they are in touch with. What rather is the challenge is measuring for which subgroups of the population we have representative enough data, we have enough examples in our system to be able to draw any generic conclusions or build any reliable models. And this, again, is something that we do iteratively. So when we uh, build any kind of automated uh, decision support or decision-making system, we evaluate it against the newly coming-in data. We let it run run in the background itself and learn in which of the contexts its behavior on the new examples uh, matches the wanted behavior so that the system uh, somehow becomes... Self-evaluating, that's one of the methods we are using. And then the others is that we, of course, compare the data that we have with other research in the field, in the area and especially demographic studies. So we then go and check uh, in the markets that we have, in the geographic uh, locations uh, where we collect data, how does the shape of the data that we see uh, correspond to the baseline Shape of the data that uh, we can find about that countries, and then definitely uh, consider that when making any kind of interpretations of the data.
0: Do you compare data over time? So, kind of the data you have trained your models on. Yeah,
1: yeah, definitely. Be, 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 I mean, we are talking about healthcare and illnesses. Uh, the 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 shape of the data around Christmas is very different to the shape of the data around mid midsummer. And also we can see the differences between uh, different demographic groups, like answer patterns. The women answer patterns differ from the men answer patterns and that the different age groups have different self-assessments, etc., etc. I would say it's impossible to capture all those differences. There will always be nuances that we miss, but the methods that we try to use is... Follow the fluctuations on the time dimension, compare the data with the general population data that we get our hands on, and then also before launching any product, have it uh, run in the background, as I said, and uh, evaluate itself against the real incoming uh, new incoming data and the decisions humans are making about it.
0: Is this kind of validation automated or manually? Or a mix. Uh,
1: usually, we uh, we do the mix.
0: Yeah. And uh, you said that data collection has taken the most time. But what has been the biggest challenge related to different automation or AI systems?
1: You mean beyond data collection,
0: or including? Has it both taken the most time and been the biggest challenge?
1: Again, it depends. But I'd say, uh, I mean, data collection has been the most time-consuming part is typically the most time-consuming part. It's also the bottom of the data science pyramid that's often quoted and uh, visualized. Uh, But I would say the biggest uh, challenge is handling the expectations. It is uh, the fact that AI has become such a buzzword and the, the, the discussion around AI is often encouraging misconceptions about what machines can do and can't do, should do and shouldn't do, what's realistic or not, what's working or not. And then uh, really identifying uh, the those use cases when using of machine learning data-driven approaches actually makes sense and makes different uh, in contrast to just doing um, AI for AI's sake. I'd say That is the biggest challenge in building good AI tools.
0: And when you say managing expectations, whose expectations are you referring to?
1: So when it comes to the healthcare industry, it is whoever is uh, on the other side of tender processes. It is the buyers and in uh, publicly funded healthcare systems like Sweden or the Nordics, it's often politicians, the state, the state institutions who are trying to do their best, but when they are defining requirements of what kind of healthcare infrastructure they want, those requirements are sometimes based on uh, misconceptions and not thorough understanding of what these things mean.
0: Do you think that is a problem also internally, at least in the early days of doctrine? I mean, probably AI was a new concept for many people also here.
1: Uh, Yes and no. Uh, I think definitely there were some unrealistic expectations uh, both about what's difficult and what's not. So both missing out on things that were low-hanging even though they seemed very complex or unachievable for people who are not uh, experts in this area and the other way around. So having the expectations like for example the uh, cancer image analysis uh, project that definitely had results but that uh, it became clear even though this is doable, it's not uh, the most meaningful thing uh, for Doctrine to do Uh, because there are companies who specialize only in this. Uh, So uh, what I still think was the positive thing at Doctrine has been that the goal of what Doctrine is trying to achieve has been clear and hasn't changed, which is radically improving healthcare as a system. And then with that background... It's been been only a matter of finding out the facts and then motivating. Is this application of AI radically improving healthcare or not? Will we radically improve healthcare more with this not-a-sexy, low-hanging, simple method than we would if we started a one-year investment in using the latest methods in this area but whose impact would be very limited? And that's why these discussions have been... Rather easy. They've been fact-based and uh, that I appreciate.
0: Yeah, cool. I think the scenario you describe is really good because many times when you hear about projects going wrong, it's often that companies internally have decided that they should use AI.
1: Yeah, and this is, as I say, which we sometimes see with our potential customers as well when their requirement is we want this kind of AI feature instead of we want to solve this problem in the best possible way, independently of what that way is, then it sometimes limits us from giving them the best possible help we can because they've decided based on some ground that it is this exact feature they want without setting any requirements on it being better than other approaches.
0: So your take is to have clear goals is number one, and then you use whatever methods that is the best to to achieve that.
1: Defining what problems are you solving uh, and how will you measure whether you've solved them or not.
0: Yeah, very good advice. And uh, given your very many years of experience within the field of artificial intelligence, and you have been a pioneer in uh, several locations, starting the AI work in companies. What would be your top three advice to a listener in a company who is thinking about starting to work with AI in his or her company?
1: Uh, I'm afraid I'll be repeating myself, but uh, it would be, don't start by saying I want to use AI, however uh, attractive that might be. Everyone else is using AI. I also want to use AI. What can I use AI for? Start by looking at your company and what challenges you're dealing with and then saying, how do I solve this challenge best? Sometimes the answer will be AI. If it is, that's when you use AI. But if it's not, use whatever method is best for your challenge, for the problem you're trying to solve. My second advice would be replace AI with another word. Um, For example, automation. And then instead of looking at, what can I use AI for? Then look, what kind of processes can I automate uh, in my context, in my company, in my industry? and Or even better, maybe not automate, but make more efficient. What is the weakest uh, link in, in the chain that I have? In my uh, production line chain, in my customer relationships chain, what is the weakest link? and then look at, okay, how do I make it stronger? Or how do I make my least efficient process more efficient? And I think that's where often you will find either the interhuman relationship issues that you want to work on, and AI won't help you there, or you will find some potential for, it, for data-driven improvements, be there very simple data-driven models or more advanced uh, AI. But don't chase AI for AI's sake. AI is expensive, it is ever-changing. It is difficult to recruit AI experts. If you are building AI, you want to have the best people building AI for you and they're not easy to recruit. So unless AI is the right tool for you, don't, don't try to use it just for the tool's sake.
0: And the third advice?
1: The third advice would be, If for whatever reason, whether it is to tick the AI box or because you have a real problem that needs AI, if you are building an AI system, make sure to beforehand define how will you evaluate it? How will you measure if this system is useful or not? If it's good or not? If it's becoming better or not? So this third one is also often forgotten. And here, I think when working in industry, it is often skipped. So often you identify a use case for AI, good or bad. You build your AI system, but you never invest time in evaluating how good the AI is. And then you keep pouring money or work hours or uh, other infrastructure into, into this AI problem uh, because your team has a that this approach or this approach or this data flow or that data annotation will make it better, but you never check whether it really is true. And the thing is, the more complex AI uh, approach you're using, the less you can rely on intuition and the more you need to rely on uh, real numbers. So make sure to
0: evaluate. Really good advice. I agree with all three of them. And now to the final question of this episode. Who are two guests that you would like me to invite to this podcast and why? Why?
1: My first recommendation would actually be my colleague, uh, anna Karenstead who is chief medical officer at Doctrine, but also one of the most data-aware people I've worked with, who could give insight into this topic uh, from a healthcare professional uh, point of view.
0: So from a more domain knowledge yes. perspective.
1: And what it means for her to work with AI experts and what kind of expectations she has and what kind of uh, help she needs, even though she's been working with data analytics uh, for for fifteen years. Uh, what uh, where uh, where does her experience end? And she needs uh, an augmentation <laughs> by a data team.
0: Yeah, a really good suggestion. I've actually met her a couple of times, and I've seen her talk on stage. She's really good.
1: Yeah. I I think it would uh, I I think your listeners could learn a lot uh, from her uh, about areas that uh, Well, I keep learning from her on a daily basis. And my other recommendation would be Galina Ester Shubina who is uh, one of the initiators behind women in data science in Sweden. Uh, she's worked at Google and many other uh, several other big companies and is a founder of great, uh, gradient descent an ai consultancy company and she's on also one of uh, uh, my inspirations in this area
0: i actually also know galina uh, she's uh, as you say one of the more prominent uh, people within ai in stockholm as far as i'm concerned and she has also worked at northvolt the, yes as the She's
1: headed the data department there, I
0: believe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Two very good suggestions. Thank you very much for joining the Talk About AI podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Talk About AI podcast. If you have any feedback on how the podcast can be improved or suggestions for future speakers, please don't hesitate to reach out. The contact info can be found on talkaboutai.com. The next episode will be released in a couple of weeks. It's difficult to say exactly when due to the COVID-19 situation. Until then, have a nice time and stay safe.